Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of EO Fire and welcome to Master Leadership. Great leaders ask great questions and this podcast takes you on a journey to master leadership with questions that matter to leaders who matter with your host, Lily Sinabria. Hi, this is Lily and today we're speaking with Michael Gale. Leadership is a learning journey created through many moments. And I believe that if you're naturally curious and you accept that leadership is next to and slightly ahead, you will be a successful leader in the 21st century. Host of Forbes Insights Futures in Focus podcast. If anyone is passionate about digital technologies and their impact on our future, it's Michael Gale. In 2001, Michael founded and sold two companies, Strategic Oxygen, a leading data toolset for marketers in the technology industry, and PulsePoint Group. Michael is a Forbes contributor, a global top 10 AI influencer, and the lead author of the Wall Street Journal and Amazon best-selling book on digital transformation, The Digital Helix a powerful blueprint to guide executives and business owners in developing a digital culture from the ground up, making it part of their organization's DNA. As the host of Forbes Insights Futures in Focus podcast, Michael brings together visionaries who are charged with the responsibility to guide and stimulate the thinking necessary to drive design and actions that will change the world we'll be living in in 10 years from now. Our future will be identified and defined by decisions, ideas, and practices that we start putting into play today. Michael hopes to spark new ways for us to do anything and everything right now to help prepare us to thrive in the future. Welcome, Michael Gale. How are you? Well, I'm great, and it's wonderful to be here today. I'm looking forward to this conversation, too. So are we. Now, are you ready to pour into our listeners? Oh, yes. So, Michael, can you tell us a bit about your path to leadership and what you're doing now? Yeah, I think that's a great question that we should actually all ask ourselves every day. So I started off as an immigrant in 1993 in Texas, basically building a research company in the tech industry that we took public in sort of 98. And I think from a leadership comprehension, I got to see a lot of leaders needing insight to make better decisions, either as a crux for a decision they didn't want to make or as a mirror into a future they're actually excited about. So my journey, I think, has started as like, how does knowledge help change decisions? And then I went to run a pretty big unit at Micron, the microprocessor DRAM company, of about 5,500 people. And I think that the biggest lesson I learned there over the four-year period was what you say, how you treat others, and also how transparent you are, are the three greatest indicators of success. Because I think people get to see leadership in very small, highly personal moments. So whether or not it's talking to people at a cafeteria, answering an email that may get spread to other people, and actually just listening to conversations and interacting. Leaders that do that with vision, transparency, and sort of connecting in the moment are genuinely the best leaders I've ever seen. And it actually led me to work with a number of NFL teams because I recognize that great coaches, whether it's Pete Carroll, Dan Quinn, or actually a friend of mine who's now in Green Bay, Matt LaFleur, live in that moment with that transparency, sort of with that vision, with that intimacy, 
with players and coaches because highly stressful worlds, which is, I think, where we're heading towards. Oh, we're heading? I think it's going to get a lot worse, right? So yes, yes. get ready for a journey into chaos. I think you can do whatever tricks you want, but if you can't have vision, you can't have transparency, you can't have intimacy, it's really difficult to bring people along because the world is confusing, challenges we face are confusing, and a lot of the patterns we're going to sort of face are patterns of behavior and outcomes and challenges we've never faced before. So if I can look you in the eye or listen to what you've said or feel the energy that comes with that, it doesn't matter intellectually if you're right or wrong. I'm going to be open to being led by you or directed or navigated. That really to me was my path, watching those things happen in a tech company, watching them happen in the NFL and then being lucky to write this book. You just get to see what real leadership is like under duress. So tell us about your book. Well, the book was called The Digital Helix. It was uh, published back end of 2017. It's a Wall Street Journal and Amazon bestselling book, but it's basically about the DNA of what it takes to successfully digitally transform your organization. So instead of wrapping it in digital technology, it says, hold it. If digital is to be your core, if you're going to be a platform as a business, here are all the things you've got to get right to get it right. And it's sort of through research and interviews, about 300 hours watching clients do stuff. We really worked out there was a sort of DNA, seven basic components for doing this. And if your organization can get this right, there's a darn good chance you're going to be successful. So got very lucky, book has sold a lot of copies. And I think it sort of acts as a reference guide for leaders trying to get this process right. It's incredibly difficult changing wealth. And if we think it's going to get easier, <laughs> it ain't. Right. And to a lot of our listeners are in the education discipline. Where could they get this book? couple of things. I'm very happy to send you a free digital copies just because in the education market, people don't have money for books. So I'll send you a code. It's a really important thing to share. There are two things, though, I think in the education market we have to be really honest about. And I'll give you an analogy to start with and I'll sort of lead to the example. So one of the things that often happens inside these NFL teams is their coaches are in their sort of 40s to 60s. So they've got kids. They're either going to university or back into high school. A lot of them say, hey, what should my kid do at college? Because I want them to be prepared to thrive. I don't really want them to be a football coach. And I think I've learned by the volume of those questions, there's a very important dynamic, which is, should we educate people the same way that they've been successful in, in the past in order to be prepped for the future? And I do believe from an educator's perspective, either you know, in high school, sub-high school, undergraduate, even postgraduate, We've got to really rethink about how we train people to be successful through the educational system. You know, we've had this tradition of like learn X, learn Y, and mm. think through these problems. Well, I think we've got to teach people far more frequently and with a much wider range to really think about how do we solve big challenges, big problems in front of us versus how do I just use some of this information and apply it? Because the way we think about a future digital world is a lot more fluid but I think we've thought about the sort of rather hierarchical binary world we've all lived in. So I'll send you the coats because I'm more than happy for readers in the education market to take it for free. But I do think there's a moment of reflection here about what sort of educational systems you should be putting in place so that our kids or young adults or frankly even ourselves in continuing education have the best chance to thrive in a world that's going to be radically different 5, 10, 15 years from frankly the preceding 50 years. First of all, thank you so much for the generosity. You know, one of the questions that is always asked is how do we prepare the next generation? And so you've touched on this. And I believe, too, that a big part of moving us forward is leadership skills. Yes. But I also think we have to prepare ourselves differently as educators. Because I think one of the challenges is we can't change what we ask people to learn 
if we don't change how we teach or frankly learn ourselves. So I think no matter what function you live in, art, social science, applied sciences, medical, we each have to recognize what is the digital landscape our students are living in and what are the best tools to give them the right learning structure, fractions, pieces, whatever. I think the fourth thing that really matters is we've got to recognize that a lot of knowledge that's going to be applied is going to come from a whole range of areas, biotech, language, culture, leadership skills. We've got to be a lot better at synthesizing various skill structures from various areas. And I think part of that leadership mantra is we've got to encourage people to be curious. Curiosity is probably your best vessel to success in the future. Yes. Thank you so much for that. Now, how would you describe your leadership style? If I had to pick up four words, I would say curious. I believe in everybody in any situation. I believe that learning is a progressive process and you have to lead people through that learning process. And I do think you have to set definitive standards. Whether or not it's you must be always curious, you must be always learning, don't make assumptions. I tend to lead next to and slightly ahead, not radically behind or radically ahead. When I think about this, I think of a coach. Is that the foundational work that you've done to arrive at this point? Yes. I think football coaching, irrelevant to one's love or dislike of the game, is an extraordinarily intense learn, vision, culture situation because, you know, the season is incredibly compressed. The pre-seasons are very structured and you have limited moments to have impact. So you have to learn quickly that relationships, helping people lean into that future as much as you can personally, is a really vital process, but you have to have a definitive landmark. Otherwise you'll spend your whole time trying to corral when you need to corral, push and lead. So I think what I call just ahead with clarity is probably the right way from a leadership perspective in the future to manage, because none of us can predict the world over the horizon. We have a lot of new leaders listening in. What's one of the first things that they can do to better prepare them for effective leadership? So I think there's two really simple steps, and they've probably been true since time immemorial, but I think they're more prescient than ever before. As a leader, you need to have really good self-awareness. You need mm -hmm. to go through the exercise you and I have just done, because all leaders have different styles. There may be common components, but there's different weightings. So you've really got to have good self-awareness, your strengths, your weaknesses. The second thing you do is you take a piece of paper and you say, what do I need to stop doing? What do I need to do differently? What do I need to continue doing? And what do I need to start doing for the very first time? And I think every day you should look at that stop, start, continue, do new as a map for how you become increasingly more conscious of yourself. I think around that chart should be a simple circle that says, be constantly curious. Because it's too easy when we're being promoted to the positions to assume that we're ready for action. We may be ready to start, but we're not ready for action. And we need to be curious about ourselves and those around us to genuinely generate the skills that people can say, that is my manager, that is my leader, that's the person I will follow and I will help and I'll work with. Beautifully said. Now, I'm curious, which quotes speak to your life and why? I think there's two or three. I think my favorite one, which we used a lot in the book, is tradition is the illusion of permanence. And I believe that that is the epicenter of what drives curiosity. And it also drives you to question what is done before as being the right way of doing it in the future. So that quote to me has two really definitive aspects to it. I think probably from a second perspective is Kennedy's speech at Rice about going to the moon. We really should choose to do things, not because they're easy, 
but because they are hard. And I think the opportunity of digital technologies, digital platforms, is they make those hard things more practical and believable than ever before. So tradition is the illusion of permanence. And I think this issue that we should do things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. Can you tell us about a leader who inspires you? I'd always say my wife, because I really believe I watch her navigate the day in the world with really remarkable ethical compass, incredible empathetic sympathy, and a sense of energy. And I think because, you know, we work together on the business and other stuff that really, I think, is an important example, because I think sometimes we look at the top of a mountain when often the best leader is a shepherd right next to us. And that's true in companies, education establishments elsewhere. I really think the best leaders I've ever seen have often been teachers I've had, either at school or at college, because they were leaders in learning. And I think leadership is about teaching others to learn more, to be more curious. I think if you just look at the general landscape of the world around us, it's actually tough to measure leaders from a distant perspective because there's so much dark that we all have. You can overemphasize a bit clearly. JFK, I think, was remarkable. I think Nelson Mandela was an amazing leader because to move from that level of adversity to a position of enormous representation is important. And Emily Pankhurst, who basically got women the vote in the UK, really locked into a perspective on equality and didn't stop till it happened. And that was a really tough time in British history to get anything to change. So, you know, you've mentioned curious many times. How can we grow that skill? I think you've got to recognise what parts of the day you're open to a curious journey. And if you're midway through a hard work process, you've got to be in deliverable mode. But you've got to find that time of the day and you've got to find the right methods that you enjoy to be curious. So I spend a lot of time reading online for probably 45 minutes to an hour, really early in the morning. You know, maybe 5.30 to 6.30 or 6 to 7. But to me, curiosity is that constant capacity to learn, both from familiar sources you go to, maybe new ones, and also possibly just reading books. I might keep five, six, seven books around me that I'll pick up various chapters from. So know the time of day that it's best for you to be curious and then know the mediums that you like to be curious in and then obviously the types of information you're looking for. The second, I think, really big component is don't be curious just about things you are naturally interested in. Go a little on the edges. So I might read Nature magazine just because it's an interesting science process, I have no technical knowledge to be reviewing papers in it, but it does start to spark thoughts about how systems work, how biotechnology is going to make a difference, how we should be thinking about organizational structures. And the third issue is share conversations with people in curious ways, whether or not it's LinkedIn or any other social platform you work with. Don't be afraid to engage in conversations with others because everybody is really smart and curious sharing that process works. So find the right time of day find the right mediums, be prepared to go a little outside your basis of where mm. you've naturally gone, but definitely be open to conversation because that constant feeding of your own learning, that constant desire to go to other boundaries and that desire to interact with people can drive it. And there's a very famous example of this that goes back to the Industrial Revolution. It's a group called the Lunar Society based in Birmingham in the 1740s. These were actually really normal business people running businesses, but were very curious about this development during the period of enlightenment of science. And in fact, Charles Darwin's father was a member of it. They actually used to meet up once or twice a month. I'm sure they drank and ate merrily. But they would talk about these new developing sciences, views about astrology effectively, or even astrophysics or astronomy. I mean, they just would cover every possible subject so that they could stimulate themselves. You have to work out what your 
DNA for curiosity is because it's not the same for everybody. It's like having mastermind groups. It's exactly like having that. But I think you have to do some work on your own. It's it's Mm -hmm. sort of like book clubs or quickly read the summary. That's not what it's really about. Some of it's just being curious about language. You have to go on the journey. And there's so many things to learn or feel or experiment with. You want to have a area of comfort and an area of discomfort that you do it in. Otherwise, you just constantly reinforce your own biases or prejudices. Now, Michael, what's the best advice you've ever received? I think the best advice I've ever received is be the best version of yourself. And it's a classic statement often made in mindset training or it's often made to athletes. But what I've noticed is when you try and put square pegs in round holes, it just doesn't work. Now, you certainly can put a square peg in an octagonal hole in some ways, but I think it's extraordinarily difficult to not be the best version of yourself by being uncomfortable in ways you can't deal with. And I think that probably to me is the best launching pad for self-activation is work out what that best version of yourself is. It means you have to get a little uncomfortable. You have to go into boundaries you've not been used to, but be curious about yourself and you'll find out what that best version is. You spoke about being self-aware, especially as leaders, but there's typically something that happens that gets you to that point where, hey, I need to look at this more. What was the pivotal point for you in your leadership or your life? No, it's a great question. I think there's two life moments and one leadership moment. I think the life version was I had appendicitis on an airplane coming back from Israel. Not a good place because they had to sort of start the process on the plane. You very quickly recognize, hold it, if I get through this, I need to be true to myself every day. I think the second thing that really hit me on leadership style is in a really big corporation when you're trying to turn it around and everybody's looking at you, you have to be transparent. You have to be very good at integrating and listening, and you have to be incredibly intimate. You can't do this by mandate. Transparency is one thing. Transparency and vision is another. But transparency, vision, and intimacy is without that truth. And that's why you have to be yourself, because irrelevant of words, people's eyes and ears tell much more about you than the words that will come out of their mouth or yours. That's so true. Now, what does it mean for you to have a good team And how do you build and sustain one? So I think there's a couple of ways we look at teams. And I think one of the ways is a dangerous future model, but successful versions of those matters. I think think we've always talked about teams as being almost permanent groups of people that do something, a function, an output together over time. I think that's changing a lot, not just with, you know, gig workers and people working from home in an office. But I think it's changing a lot because the nature of work, how we work together, marketly, moments and projects is really changing that. You don't have the time to build relationships that you would have had historically, you know, three, four, five, six, seven versions. So I think two key elements that really drive successful teams that are brought together for moments is get honest with people, explain what the outcomes are, explain the challenges, explain what you do know, what you don't know, talk about what your strengths and weaknesses are. So we used to do this whole two truths about yourself and a lie. We even do it with the football players. They love it. So I think that level of transparent clarity is essential more than ever before in leadership because people are going to be needing to make decisions that don't necessarily involve the leader, either in the group or outside the group. So you've got to empower them to have as much knowledge as possible to work. And one of the things we found empirically in the research model, sorry for the cough, was that one of the seven big components is that everybody is responsible to each other all the time. That sense of fluid knowledge, and you've got to be transparent to do that, because if you can't do that, people can't make decisions. So I think 
Great fluid teams, which is where we're going, is about vision, transparency, explanation of challenges, and a sort of almost a constant experimentation with what works because you don't have five, six, seven reps to get it right. You may just have one. You mentioned playing this two truths and a lie. Is that something that you recommend to connect quickly? Yeah, but I think there's a context. Actually, I ran a couple of experiments here, which is probably a little naughty. But we <laughs> ran an experiment where somebody just started with that. And then we ran an experiment where someone said, look, here's what the vision is. Here are the challenges. Here's the opportunity. And here's by the, how I, my style works. Mm-hmm. Then they went into the two truths of light. And that version worked infinitely better than the first. So I think it needs context before it works. It can't work rawly on its own. Because in order for people to lean into a situation and tell them things about yourself and then try and bluff the group, the leader has to expose themselves. They have to get much more comfortable getting uncomfortable before they ask others to get uncomfortable before them. And the tendency mm-hmm. for a lot of traditional leaders is say, go do that game. Well, right. what about you? I'm not part right. of it. You can't do that. You know, the other thing we found with the book is that really successful leaders in big corporations spending ungodly sums of money on digital transformation rolled their sleeves up and got into it. They didn't dictate or mandate. They really got engaged. And I think it's true of any team level. This is really about leading from in front to the side, not about dictating from the front and orchestrating work. You've got to be part of that process. Great. Hey, leaders, stay tuned for the rest of the interview following this brief message. Master Leadership at Schools podcast program will help prepare your students for any future they encounter. Teachers and students learn effective leadership and podcasting skills to create a platform that's an incubator for leadership innovation, collaboration, and creativity. See this in action at masterleadership.org forward slash MLS and find out how to bring this to your organization. That's masterleadership.org forward slash MLS. So Michael, tell us about a challenge that you've experienced and how it shaped your life. Yeah, let me tell you one I've really miserably failed at because I think that failure is a Great learning process. We were trying to shift a Fortune 500 company from one business model to the next. And I think there's something I learned with large populations is you can have really good vision, very energetic clarity. But if you don't have all the steps between the vision, the clarity and that final outcome, you know, months, quarters, maybe years out, you will eventually lose people. I think the secret I've learned is for every statement you make, you have to follow it up with 10 actions because people are progressively convinced and engaged over time. They won't always understand, believe or get the idea at a intellectual level. I think proof more than anything else, consistent proof, a statement, 10 actions is something I really learned to my chagrin was actually a really important part of the process. So we managed to shift the organization from basically a call-in PC company to one of the leading online PC selling companies back in 2001, but we couldn't get it out of certain functions to other parts of the way the organization were working, and that stunted the capacity for success. And I think having that say it once, do 10 things to reinforce it, was to me the ultimate learning lesson from a leadership perspective. Consistent development of living examples. We're going to build case examples. We're going to spread this. We're going to populate a corporation. We're not just going to say it and hope that it ripples through. And that whole change management process at a leadership level, I think is almost vitally more important than just the visioning and the resource allocation. Perfect. Thank you. Now, can you tell us about one of your greatest successes? 
Well, we've been very lucky. I've built and sold three companies a couple of times each. So I think that these have all been software as a service companies. They've not been as significant in size. The last one was about a quarter of a billion dollars. And I think that the number one skill of vision is the ability to understand where you are, but also where it could be. And taking a business from that where it is to where it could be is much easier than people realize. Because if you can get out of the sort of chaff in the field, it's very easy to see over the horizon if you have enough empathy for how those customers really need to think about their future problems. So any business you build should be a future business that has revenue now, not a current business that struggles against competitors. Vision is, without doubt, one of the strongest attributes for small companies' leadership to drive differentiation. And it's true in academic circles too. So I think from an education standpoint, a business point, we've been very lucky to have that vision on two, really three, but certainly on two large financial transactions that were businesses that were two to four years ahead of the market. So by the time we built it, they were still one to three years ahead and were an easy transaction versus building something that just solved a now problem that didn't have that sort of vision energy in it. And I think that vision and energy actually bounces back to the leaders to make them look increasingly more powerful because they've seen the future and they've acted on it. Wonderful. You know, I just keep thinking about a conversation I had yesterday with someone from a school district that is having so many challenges. And most of the challenges are from the adults. It's been a political nightmare, so much so that the State Department is looking to take over and it's at a standstill. Everybody is hyper sensitive about everything. And there's been a lot of things that were not done right. How do you even start to deal with something like that? I mean, I know that's a big question, Michael, but I feel that we can learn from different disciplines. How can we look at a situation like this and not throw our hands up? So I think there are some interesting learnings actually from global diplomacy, you know, one culture versus another, you know, one Mm -hmm. set of assumptions versus another. The very first thing, you have to sit down and put an empathy cap on and say, if I'm camp A, there can't be, Empathetically, if I was in Camp B, why am I saying that? Because I think generally construction or re-engineering has to come from two empathetic paths that can meet each other. It cannot come back from, I believe this, you believe that, and we're going to try and force things together. It has to come from a basic empathetic understanding. You may not agree with it, but you have to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. I think the second issue is quite simple, which is what's our vision of the future? And I think you may surprisingly find, it's Kennedy's quote, you know, we all live on on the same earth, we all breathe the same air, we all have the same hopes and expectations of our children. What parent in the whole world, in, in Tanzania or Russia or Des Moines, wouldn't say that? And I think it's trying to find what that shared vision is mm. and that position of empathy before you then try and jointly navigate a path to the future. It's very easy to say, you did that, I've done this, you felt I've succeeded, vice versa. You'll never get to a position of success, but empathy, you know, common vision. And I think an attempt to just roll the sleeves up and say, do we really want to solve this, given the empathy and the common vision? I think are the best test to do this with. Otherwise, everything becomes a sort of almost jurisprudent situation where people are in such conflict as I win or you lose. Right. And frankly, if both sides lose, everybody loses. So that's sort of mutually assured destruction. You want people stepping away from that mad perspective into a much more empathetic, shared vision, you know, resolution pathway process. It happens a lot in M&A, by the way. It's not untypical when large companies buy small companies 
that they have to make sure they don't kill off the management structure in a small company. They have to find roles in the large company for the small company employees to do. And that often means moving around employees within the larger company that thought they were very safe. So you have to find some way of empathetically understanding vision and then looking for a joint pathway. But it has to be in that order. Empathy, vision, pathway. Thank you. Now, many leaders describe themselves as lifelong learners. What does that mean to you? And what are you learning now? I think it's a constant struggle, by the way. I worry as I'm in my 50s that my learning capacity gets more. <laughs> so the first thing is... You're highly yeah, it's curious, just, so I doubt that. Well, I don't know, but it does. I get really nervous. Have I read enough books? Have I learned enough new stuff? This you, you're reading seven books now, aren't you? I think it's actually nine, but I'm picking through seven as we do it. But it's, it's still nerve-wracking because I think that one's mental capacity does, frankly, get slightly reduced later in life. We're very good at mm-hmm. contemplating and reflecting. But I think lifelong learning is a commitment to say at the end of every week, what are the 10 things I learned this week? What are the five things I might have expected to learn? And what are the five things that were a complete surprise? If you have that book of 10, and I keep notes some places, that's a good way of, of measuring capacity to learn more and then capacity to learn differently. And again, it can come from lots of different areas. It can be very small things like, hey, I learned that actually chrysanthemums are beautiful flowers, all right? Or... I've learned that, you know, being maybe a little bit more organized early in the morning, let's be complete stuff later. Or if I have a deadline to deliver on a project for other people, you know, how do I set better expectations? Those to me are lifelong learning experiences. I can pile through books and ideas, but I think some of that lifelong learning is as much about process and interactions than it is about these sort of voluminous academic or intellectual activities. Thank you. Now, what have you read, watched, or listened to that our listeners should as well, and why? So I actually think there are two or three books that I think are stupendous books right now. I've fallen in love with. I interviewed both of them for the podcast. And actually, I have a bunch of books. I'll send you if you want one of them, because the author's incredible. Of course, I always want books. One is a book by Safi Bacall, who is a remarkable biotech entrepreneur. But the book is called Loon Shots. And it's made me, partly why I like it is, it's the 50th anniversary of Moon Landing. But it's really about how to nurture sort of crazy ideas. You know, he says that wins wars, cure diseases and transform industries. But the book is a set of allegories and stories about how unusual combinations of ideas and thinking allow people to reinvent the world around them. It's Loon Shots by Safi Bacall. It is a wonderful book. It's literally the very great version of a book written by James Burke for the BBC called Axe Maker's Gift. But it is really one of the best books I think I've read in this year. The second book I recommend, which is almost a slight contradiction to this, is a book by Rich Carlgaard. It's called Late Bloomers. It's a marvelous idea, right? That's good. But, I, I want to read that. I don't have multiple copies, I'm sorry. But that's actually about the power of patience in a world obsessed with early achievement. It's a beautiful set of stories about how older people have become more successful because this power of patience and contemplation far outdoes, in my opinion, massively sort of technical sort of understanding. The third book I'd read, which is maybe a little bit more concerning, is by Jared Diamond. And this is from the guy that wrote Guns, Jones, Steel and Collapse. And it's sort of around the Paul Kennedy hypothesis of why nations, or frankly, more importantly, empires fail. And that's all started from the Gibbons book, The Decline of the Empire. But this book is called Upheaval. It's called Turning Points for Nations in Crisis. And I think it's vital as we sort of live in a world increasingly flat. In fact, my next book is called uh, Flat Cap. 
That's a great book to read. I really recommend it. The other book I'd recommend, and I think this is a great book for teachers, by the way, it's a very old book. It's a book by Christopher Booker called The Seven Basic Plots and Why We Tell Stories. And I think it's particularly important for teachers in the non-arts areas about how they explain and express knowledge using Shakespeare's seven stories, you know, Overcoming the Monster, you know, Rags to Riches, The Quest, Voyage Returns, Comedy, Tragedy, Rebirth. That's the seven basic plots, why we tell stories by Christopher Book. It might be a little difficult to get hold of. I think it's four of the best books I've read this year, but they're really wonderful reads. Fantastic. Now, tell us about your podcast and how our listeners can tune in. Yes, it's fun. It's probably not as fun as yours, actually. It's called Futures in Focus. It's one of only two podcasts that Forbes does. Steve Forbes does one, and I do one. And it's really a little abstract. Only about 19% of Americans actually think about the world 10 years from now, and then you do it once a week. Being the fact that 98% of us are gonna be around in 10 years time, we probably need to do a better job of thinking about the future, particularly because it's changing so radically. You can find it on iTunes, Forbes Insights, Futures and Focus. You can actually go to Forbes.com, type in Futures and Focus, it'll pop up. It's on Spotify, iTunes, Libsyn. And we've really interviewed everybody from someone who specializes in 3D food printing, to the man who actually cloned Barbara Streisand's dogs. And a guy called Davy Bray, who is an Eisenhower fellow, who actually talked about the future of governance at a national level. He's also worked for the FCC and actually the NSA. And I just think that these are discussions about the future world 10 years out, and these are visionaries leaning into that. They succeed or fail, we don't know, but they should induce an interesting sense of curious discord or maybe just even debate between people that listen to them because they're fairly controversial in some ways. I mean, animal cloning, I actually thought wasn't around. The individual we talk to when you hear the podcast is, look, we've been cloning government Malinois dogs that look for bomb sniffing for a decade or so because their skills are unique and those dogs don't have a very long active life, so you should get them younger. All the way through to actually interview this amazing woman who runs one of the, there's only 142 three-star restaurants in the world. She runs one in Spain. Her name is Eloise Velaseca, and she's actually about to turn that restaurant into a sort of 3D experimental food dining experience over the next 10 years because she realizes that fine dining has incredible wastage to it. She wants to cut it down to like a zero carbon footprint. So we've done lots of interviews. We've talked to people about the offices of the future, what they may look like. Talk to people about what the cloud of 10 years of time could be like. They're 30 minutes. People pick three or four subjects and we just go at it together and see what's going to happen. Forbes Insights, Futures in Focus, available on Forbes or obviously on any of those syndication channels like Spotify and iTunes. You certainly sparked my curiosity as far as 3D food printing. Yeah, well, it's very interesting, right? So you think, yeah, whatever. Well, what they're realizing is if you're going to send people to Mars, you can't just give them plastic tubes. So certainly we don't have a Star Trek food simulator, but the ability to print food out of protein in shapes and forms and tastes wow. what you want and cook it normally. I mean, he cooks the stuff you'll see in a normal way. It's great. It's also fantastic for people in hospitals that have a health issue. You can completely control it. And he said at some point, Whole Foods may well end up having 3D printers in the butcher's department, obviously not for meat product, but then you could go and say, look, I need this type of steak with that type of taste and this type of texture and protein oh quality, goodness. he thinks we're less than five years away from it. And as I said, dog cloning is here now. So what I thought was so many thing. things I don't know, Michael. So many things. Oh, somebody once said to me, how much do you know? And I said, probably about one trillionth of one half of a millionth of a percent. <laughs> Life is a learning process. It's just fascinating to see how these people are doing what they do with immense passion and energy. And thank you for the generosity of sharing that with us um, as you continue to learn. Now, if someone wanted to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? 
I'm great on LinkedIn. You can drop me an email at michael at inc.digital. I'm always happy to share stuff for free. And you'll just see the social channels for Forbes Insights, Futures and Focus on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. But as I said, I'm very easy to get hold of. Perfect. Now, you have a lot of responsibilities, Michael. What do you do on a daily basis to set your mind? I have found the right method is actually driven by the night before. So before I go to sleep, I'll often say to my wife, three gratitudes for the day. It's a really calming process. We both do it. And even when I'm traveling, I'll call her and do it. Also realize when you get up in the morning, it's easy to fall out of bed, which I often do, or or (laughs) rush out of bed because I'm late. But I actually found grounding one's feet on carpet or the floor. There's something very important about that sole of the feet to the center of the heart experience that sort of sets you down. And the second thing is I do write lists before I go to bed. What am I going to do tomorrow? Partly because I know I'll never finish a list, but partly because having things in front of you forces you to then make trade-offs. And I think it's important to have that daily list. I have various different types of paper and process, but that whole listing process is a vital way of reorganizing the day. The other thing is give yourself at least 20% of your day minimum that has nothing attached to it. You're going to get things that overrun, things that change. But your brain needs space emotionally and intellectually to do well. And I've just it's taken me a long time to do it, but I now do that on a constant basis. Wonderful. Now, here's an interesting question for a guy who's always thinking about the future. If you were to go back in time, what advice would you give the younger you about leadership? So what age would I go back to? Any age you want. I believe that I would have said to me when I was probably 30, moving to the States, grab every opportunity you have and learn from it. I think that while I did a huge amount of travel uh, and not insignificant amount of good decision making, I think sometimes I could have stretched it a lot further. And I do believe that the time is a super precious resource, but so is age. You have to have as much compressed learning as possible younger so that you are genuinely the best version of yourself for as long as possible you get older. I think I'd have said to myself, just grab it. Everything will be fine. Now, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? No, I can't think of anything. Such a great conversation. Where else would you like to go? I can't remember. There is actually one book I think that people should get on top of that list. It's a book by Yuval Noah Harari, who wrote a marvelous book, really, about the history of mankind. It's called Sap Sapiens. But this book is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. It's a remarkable book because what it does is it walks through some simple ideas that really, I think, make a radical difference to the world. When I think about writing my next book called Flat Cap, Reimagining Capitalism for a Flat Planet, a number of these sort of embryonic ideas about this have been delivered by this woman's book, and it's a fantastic book. Yuval Noah Harari, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and it's a large book, but you can read five or ten pages at a time. And I think it's almost like a set of fireworks. It will have lots of different explosions in your head that will encourage really good thinking. Perfect. Well, Michael, I want to thank you so much for adding value to me and to our listeners. It's been a great conversation. Oh, pleasure to be here. It's lovely to talk to a host that cares so deeply about the subject matters too. Yes. All right. So have a good evening, Michael. Oh, deep pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello, leaders. In closing, here's a quick message. Coaching is the art of influence that underpins leadership in the 21st century. It is the very thing that can get you from being stuck to being extraordinary. So go to masterleadership.org and sign up to get a free coaching session. Until next time, continue to ignite 
that leader in you.